Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio by Pastor Ross. Ross, it's Tuesday, and we're finally at the final installment of our Systematic Theology series. This is week 12. We've been in this for 12 weeks now. Ross, we saved, I don't know, some people would say we saved the best for last, because today we're going to talk about the return of Christ, or otherwise known as what happens when Jesus comes back to this world. Uh, in theological terms, there's a fancy word for this. What is yeah, it? Yeah, it's called eschatology. We actually saved what comes last for last, and so uh, <laughs> they did, there are some intriguing things to discuss, but eschatology is, is from a Greek word that just means the study of last things. So you could call it the study of the future, the study of what lies ahead, whatever the Bible says about the future. Last week we actually talked about personal eschatology, mm-hmm. what's the future of an individual? And now we're looking at what's the future of the whole world that we live in in God's bigger plan. Yeah, and the Bible has certainly has some things to say about this. Books like, obviously, Revelation, the last book of the of the Bible, um, but books like Daniel. Mm-hmm. So some people are really into this topic. In fact, I know a lot of Christians that just this is what this is what they get excited about. This is the kind of stuff that they love to study. I remember uh, as a high schooler, someone in my youth group really got into this. And he was like clipping, he was cutting out newspaper clippings, and he had made like this big old scrap, eschatology scrapbook. (laughs) And he was, what he was doing, he was trying to under, he was trying, I don't know where he got into this, but he was probably reading Revelation, taking it very literally, and trying to sort of map out when Jesus is going to come back based on the signs of the times. And, you know, the, our generation, my generation back then when I was in high school, that wasn't the first time it ever happened. I think it feels like Christians do. There's always a subset of Christians who are just into this in every generation. Yeah, for sure. But when I became a Christian in the early 70s, this was huge. There was this apocalyptic furor in books like The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was crazy. It was all over the place. Because, you know, inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. You know, so... Really, really, it's very. We all want to know what's going to happen in the future, and so, you know, it it become it can become an obsession. Yeah, in the mid '80s, there was a book that came out called "88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Coming Back in 1988." Yeah, that's right. And, and unfortunately, he had to write a sequel. <laughs> Eighty-nine reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. Yeah, and, and he, then he gave it up. <laughs> then he realized, well, maybe this isn't. Maybe I should write. Maybe children's I missed books. it. Yeah. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about some of the controversial stuff, like not controversial, I guess, but but just some of the issues that come up, some keywords that come up when we're talking about eschatology. We're going to talk today about the rapture. We're going to talk about something called the millennium, the millennial reign. Um, and before we get to all that. And, and kind of dive into the, I guess, I don't know, the nitty-gritty, the stuff that some people love to debate, love to read about, mm-hmm. love to study. Maybe yeah. a lot of listeners today are like, I don't know very much about this at all. It's great. So this is a yeah. good introduction to the topic. But before we get into any of that stuff where there's some decisions to be made, why don't we start with just the basics or what we know for sure? Well, the most basic single... Uh, issue here um, is really every all believers agree that Jesus is going to come back to this earth because he said so himself, and so based on what he said um, in in Matthew twenty four and other places, and then the rest of the New Testament picks up on that theme and expands on what Jesus said. So so he's the one who said I'm going to come back, and and so this becomes a pretty important theme 
in biblical theology. Okay, so so <clears throat> we know that Jesus came once already. That was the first coming, that he came to the earth. We celebrate Christmas. He lived for 30-plus years on the earth, went to the cross, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and then he said he was he was going to be coming back for sure. Is, does that mean that he physically is coming back? Like, are there some any debates about this or... Or, or questions about this in the Christian world? Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it, the Bible's pretty clear that he's physically coming back. Um, the, 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 where that deba- becomes debated is only in, there's various uh, cult groups or sort of aberrant theology groups that have either argued that Jesus' return was spiritual, that you know now his spirit is among us and or whatever, and um, others have said Jesus came back and his name is the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. That he, mm-hmm. that he is the second coming of Jesus. There's many who've said the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, it, no, it's really Jesus. It's the Jesus that, that, that we... That, uh, the disciples saw him ascend into heaven, and the angel said, look, he's going to come back in the same way that you see him leave. Okay, now we're going to... Let's put a pin in that, because I want to come back to some of the things that we know for sure that most Christians or all or most Christians agree on around this topic. But I think before we do that, there's a few things that would be really good for us to talk about. Because a lot of people aren't really read into some of the debatable stuff. And there are two right. things in particular. One is called the rapture, and the other one is called the millennium. And so let's, let's talk about those two things and some of the options or some of the ideas that are out there that Christians agree or disagree on. So right. let's start, Ross, with the rapture. When we say rapture, what are we talking about? Yeah, the, the rapture refers to Jesus' return for his church, for, the, for his people. When he comes back, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, it describes that when Jesus comes again, his followers will be caught up to meet him in the air. And at that time, if uh, actually the dead will be raised, it says resurrection, um, and those who are alive will be instantly transformed at that moment into their eternal condition. We talked about that last week. Um, but this word rapture, it comes from the, it's related to the idea of to be caught up. And so, you know, if it, you have a rapturous type experience, you're just caught up in that experience. So, so you can see the relationship. Why that word rapture, it just means talking about when the church is caught up to meet Jesus when he returns, that will that we'll be um, swept up to meet him on his way in, you could say. Okay, so let's go back to my high school days, Ross, because I remember in high school, um, I grew up in I grew up in the in the eighties, right? I'm an eighties eighties youth group kid. So I remember watching a movie, a film called The Thief in the Night. Okay. Now I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you remember this, Ross, oh, yeah. but this I'm was surprised it's still around in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. And it, it was a it was a little bit of a scare tactic for young people because it was it was all about the rapture. It was all about when when Jesus is coming back and are you ready for his second return? And you know, some people are some people are gonna be raptured and some people aren't gonna be raptured. Mm-hmm. So not everyone who says that they're a Christian really is a Christian. So we, you know, I, I don't know, maybe today now youth groups have memes, right, where somebody's sitting there uh, at the at the lunch table, and then the, in the next moment, it's just a pile of their clothes sitting there because yeah, they've yeah. been raptured, right? Yeah. So is that for, is that, is that really going to, ha- is that like a biblical concept, or is that just a scare tactic used by youth pastors? It, it, it is a biblical concept, but that, that particular 
version of that concept, Thief in the Night, and, and some of our listeners might be more familiar with a more recent, the Left Behind series, right. and the Left Behind series of books, and the Left Behind movie um, that depict much the same thing. And so it's the idea, and so that really brings out uh, the core of this rapture question. The debate, the debate is the timing of things, um, and so. The timing is, so So one group says that the rapture is going to happen at some unknown moment. Nobody can, it could be just boom, like you said, you're sitting there at lunch and boom, somebody's gone. Um, but that it's, but it's a separate event than the public return of Christ. So Jesus said he's going to come and it'll be visible and the top Bible talks about how the whole world will see him and boom, it's all over, you know, at that point in time. He comes, he kind of he kinda rides into town in victory, you know, and now he, now he's, he rules uh, for good. So in that scenario, if, so the question is, are those two different events, or are they the same event? Is the rapture uh, before the, really, the, the visible second return of Christ? And if it is, then you'd have a scenario where some people are, left, are still left Left behind, as the series said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if the rapture is the same event as the public return of Christ, and we're caught up in the air to meet Jesus at the same time that he's visibly, apparently, uh, apparent to the whole world, then there's not people who are left behind because that becomes the end of things mm. at that moment, you know. Now, one of the other issues that one of the other keywords that we need to introduce. We're talking about the rapture. We're talking about the millennium here in, this, in a second. But another word that people need to be familiar with is the tribulation, mm-hmm. right? And, and this is related to, this is where the timing of everything really matters. Yeah. Some, some people believe in a pre-trib rapture. Some people believe in a mid-trib rapture. And some people believe in a post-trib rapture. What are we talking about when we're talking about the tribulation related to the rapture. Yes, yeah, so the Bible's pretty clear that, uh, I th- and I think everyone from every uh, es- eschatological perspective would by and large agree that there, Jesus talks about this time of tribulation or trouble that at the end of the age before his return uh, increases to a level of intensity that the world has never seen before. And so um, the question is then, in the timeline, we're going along and then um, this tribulation occurs, does this snatching up of the church happen before the tribulation or after the tribulation or somewhere in the middle of the tribulation, which isn't as, as popular of an idea, but it, it kind of takes, some people think the best of both, and some people think it takes the worst of both. <laughs> um, so where does the rapture happen with respect to the tribulation and then re- with respect to the visible uh, triumphant coming of Christ. Th- those are the question marks. All right, so when we're looking at Scripture, as people are out there listening to this, and again, this is we're just going to be talking about this for an hour or less. So obviously, if people want to study this more, there's some great books out there. We'll make sure to put some links to those books online at PursueGod.org. But what are some things, what are some signs that we should be looking for when we're thinking about when all this stuff's going to happen? Yeah, the, you know, um, everyone agrees there's signs of the times. There's two kinds of signs, I think, uh, in my view. There's the signs, Jesus talks about, again, this is Matthew chapter 24, is the main uh, words of Jesus about this. He talks about 
trouble. He said his, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and famines and uh, all kinds of calamities in the world. And he says these are he says these are like the birth pangs. I don't think those are signs of Jesus' return. I think those are characteristics of the whole age as we approach the end. Um, so we're going to see. So for example, for example. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here the first time. We, Christians have been waiting for his return ever since. And, and through the whole period, there's been wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence and all kinds of things that Jesus talks about. And, and those haven't really been the harbinger of Jesus' return mm. because the, the, we're, we're still in this age. You know, he could, come, he could come right around the corner now, and, and then we'd say, oh, these are the signs of the times. So to me, it doesn't really help to look at, oh, uh, there's, you know, the, there's this rising political power, or the, there's more, there's a global pandemic, and whatever. There's been global pandemics before, centuries ago, mm-hmm. right? So, but then there are, uh, there are three things that the Bible talks about that really are very closely related to this, the final return of Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 says the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the implication is is that if the gospel hasn't been preached to all the nations, then Jesus is still awaiting. Um, And then we talked about that great time of great tribulation, and that comes before the end. And then the third thing is the coming of this antichrist-type character, this person who who the devil raises up a, a false Jesus to oppose Christ at the level of global leadership potentially, and Second Thessalonians calls him the man of lawlessness, and it says that when Jesus returns, he will, you know, uh, he will defeat this man of lawlessness and depose, depose this Antichrist. So that means the coming of the Antichrist has to happen before Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, those are the signs that are the most... And, and then, of course, there's another set. Jesus himself said, look, then there'll be signs in the heavens, um, you know, there'll be stars falling and, and planets, uh, you know, and darkness and chaos in the, in the heavenly realm, but that's like at the moment. That's not like, oh, we're watching that happen over... But at the very final moment of Jesus' return, um, then there's going to be some kind of natural calamities that apparently occur, but that's just at that moment. So that's not like a sign to warn us in advance, I don't think. Okay, so Ross, what would you say to the person, they're listening to all this, again, thinking about my buddy in high school, and they're like, oh, this is good, I'm going to try to time this out. What does the Bible say about 88 signs that Jesus is coming back in 1988, or the next time someone writes a book like that, or claims to know when it's all going to happen, and and how much we should be paying attention to that? Yeah, what's really, you know, Jesus said nobody knows the hour or the day. Nobody. Nobody. And so it's going to come suddenly from that movie. That movie, the name, movie you mentioned is based on a, a passage in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5. He said it's going, to come, it's going to come suddenly like a thief in the night. In other words, a thief isn't going to say, hey, I'm, I'm coming on next Tuesday night at, at 11 a.m., 11 p.m., if you'd be so kind as to leave the door unlocked, you know. No, there's just no announcement. There's no prior announcement of his return. Nobody could know the hour of the day. And so... So that would say, look, why, why are people doing this? Why are they trying to figure this out? And then you couple that with the track record of everybody in the whole world who's ever taken that approach, who's ever wrote in that, written that book, and there's plenty of them out there, you believe me. 
um, you know, you should realize that, you know, hey, that's a futile exercise, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not fruitful, and we're going to talk in a minute about how we should be engaged in light of Jesus' return, and that's not it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Jesus was making a point when he said that, that the return will be like a thief in the night, and we'll, we'll get to what the point was in a second. But let's talk first a little bit about this other concept, and it's the concept of the millennium. Right, and we're 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 not talking about the millennial falcon. We're talking <laughs> about the the thousand year reign that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Right. Right. So Revelation chapter twenty, around verses one through eight, talk about this thousand year reign. So Revelation chapter nineteen shows Jesus returning triumphant and conquering all of his enemies, and then immediately in chapter twenty, Satan is bound. He's thrown into a pit. You know, in other words, kept from being active. This, this, uh, the reign of Jesus. There's a resurrection at the beginning of it for the righteous. There's a resurrection at the end of it for all the rest. And then Revelation 20 shows the the, the final judgment happening. And so the debate is the debate centers around whether the book of Revelation ought to be understood more symbolically or more literally. In other words, is the Revelation 20 talking about a literal time frame when Jesus will actually re- reign on the earth. And if you, if you take the whole book of Revelation as being more symbolic, now everybody agrees that there's plenty of symbolic elements in the book of Revelation, um, and everybody takes certain things symbolically, even the most literalists, because you, you just kind of have to. Um, it doesn't make sense. But the question is how much of it is symbolic, how much of it is literal, and in particular, the chapter 20 description of this this, this uh, millennial reign of Jesus, how literal and how symbolic is that? The ones who, are, who take it symbolically are called amillennial, ah, the ah meaning non, not, so they say there is no literal millennium. Um, that this, this symbolically represents things that have been happening already in the, in the life of the church. And then the ones who take it more literally are called premillennial, because that, what they, that means is the return of Jesus comes before this millennial thing. It's a real literal thing, and Jesus comes first, and then he reigns for a thousand years. Okay, so someone's out there listening to this saying, okay, I've never heard of this before, but I'm a Southern Baptist. So which one am I? Am I amillennial or am I pre, premillennial? Yeah, you're I don't you're know. probably premillennial. Yeah. yeah. And here's, here's the thing about a lot of the eschatology, the debates about eschatology, is that when it comes to eschatology, most of us, most Christians are living in a, a look at an eschatological bubble. So most Christians just assume that what they've been taught is really what the Bible teaches, and it may be, but very, very likely unaware of other people's perspectives on this or other points of view. It just gets taught as is. And so most of us are like, oh, well, of course Jesus comes back before the tribulation. Um, because that's the only thing that I've ever been taught. Or, it, of course, there's a literal millennium. Yeah, so for someone who's out there who's, you know, and I've met people who are a little bit militant about this, maybe a word to those people, Ross, that, you know, like you said, you, you might be a, the kind of person who you've, you've read the whole se- the Left Behind series, and if you've read that, then that takes which perspective? That's uh, premillennial, pre-tribulational. Right. Which, okay, so again, that means you believe, we believe that 
Christians will be raptured before the tribulation, mm-hmm. which is sort of comforting, right, for Christians. Well, sure. Nobody wants to have to go through that time. Yeah, that's right. It might not be realistic. I think Christians should be... I've always felt like Christians, you know, it'd be great if we're not there, but we ought to be ready to be there. Yeah. Well, and 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 kind of the whole idea behind the, the Left Behind series is we're going to leave some DVDs behind for the people who didn't make the cut, right? <laughs> so they could understand What's, what just happened. What yeah. just happened. So and they it, understand it's not the aliens who took all the you know, <laughs> right. Christians, right? Yeah, and it, it's really actually very interesting to watch some of those movies or read those books. Just and again, remember... That's fiction. That's fiction. Those books are fiction based on a perspective right. on the end times. Right. It might be the right perspective. It might it not might be not the right be. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I think the message to Christians is to say, hey, look, if Jesus, if there was only one option, it would be clear to all of us which one it was. Right. That's right. And But it's not, because there's plenty of... We're not getting into all the scripture around this, but there's plenty of... There's plenty of scripture that can that will support either of these perspectives, whether we're talking about pre-trib or post-trib, or whether we're talking about premillennial or amillennial. Yeah, and of course, it it also depends on the assumptions that you make going into the question. That's going they're going to uh, color how you read all the scripture. So, for example, with the millennial issue, you're making assumptions, and the assumptions might be grounded. They're not just like made up. But the assumptions have to do with, well, how much is symbolic, how much is literal. Yeah. That's not necessarily a question of what the Bible says. That's more of a question of how should I understand what the Bible says. Right. Okay, so the, the message then to you, if you're going to launch into some research on this, I, my message to you would be, don't make this a hill to die on. That's what I would encourage people to do. And even don't don't be so passionate about studying eschatology that you forget you forget to just disciple people and love love Jesus and read your bible and love you love people don't you know i i'm always a little bit i get concerned maybe this is good to say this at the end of our systematic theology uh, 12 weeks of of content on this i get concerned anytime somebody majors on the minors mm-hmm. and some people might even really take take offense at what I'm saying right here, because you would think, well, this is a major. Eschatology <laughs> yeah. is a major. And I, well, it's obviously, it's in, it's, it made the cut for our series. We're talking about 12. Um, what I'm talking about is being so focused on your perspective on it that you alienate Christians who love Jesus who might have a different perspective on this gray area. Yeah, that's a good point. It is an important issue, but not every aspect of it is import, as important as... The fact we're going to look in, at a moment right here, really transitioning into why the return of Jesus is so important to the believer and why mm-hmm. it's an important topic in in discipling. Um, but honestly, a lot of these things. T- to be honest with you, Brian, I feel like a lot of Christians are caught up in the details of the Book of Revelation, of eschatology, and so forth, because. Um, they have this model in their mind that really maturity is about knowing more, mm-hmm. um, where we, we understand that maturity is about investing in other people, um, and so d- making disciples. But if your model is maturity is just knowing more, that at some point in life you get you know you know all the Bible, so you have to start delving into the esoteric stuff mm-hmm. in order to keep adding to your knowledge. And so, really, sometimes these kind of studies can just be a way to really not not get into what matters the most, and that is life change in people around us. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, to take it even one step further, Ross, I think Satan would, he wants to distract God's people from being on mission for Jesus. That's what he wants to do. And he'll use whatever. He'll use addiction for that. He'll yeah, use yeah. he'll use sin. He'll use your flesh. And he'll also use theology for that. Yeah. He he would Satan is fine with Christians getting so invested in information and knowledge which as Paul said can puff up, yeah. but love builds up. Satan Satan can use theology to distract Christians from the mission of Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so uh, again, we, did, we we weren't prepared to talk about this, but I think it's good to do this right at the end of our theology series is, Christians, I want to encourage you, continue to read God's Word, continue to develop what you believe about all the stuff we've talked about, including eschatology, but don't don't forget that we need to be on mission for Jesus. We need to be prayerfully considering who in our life we could be discipling and helping to pursue God. And this conversation will probably eventually be a part of that discipleship process with someone. In fact, maybe you're listening to this right now because you're discipling someone on this topic, and that's fantastic. But don't be so focused on the information side of any of this that you forget the people side of it. Yeah, and I think I have seen uh, in my lifetime how the study of eschatology really does can drive people into mission, because if you really understand that Jesus is coming back soon and you don't know when it's going to happen— then we know that we have. Jesus said, "You know, um, let's let's work while it's still light, while we still have the day before the night comes." In other words, he's saying there's a period of time where we have an opportunity in the lives of other people around us. And if Jesus is coming soon, then that that window will close in the lives of the people that. And, and when I was young, and and this whole big uh, eschatology uh, craze was going on in the early '70s. It really did motivate a lot of Christians to, to want to share their faith, because mm-hmm. they thought, you know what? Uh, you need to know Jesus before he comes back again, and it's too late. Yeah, that's a good point. That's good. Okay, so with that, with that in mind, with the background of some of these controversial things about the rapture and the millennium, Ross, let's talk about what we know about Jesus' return, you know, sort of what, what most Christians can say for sure, right? Where yeah. there's real an intersection for all these people. Yeah, are. for sure. What do we know? Well, we know Jesus is coming back. That's number one. We, we talked about that before. We know um, many things about how he's coming back. For example, we talked a minute ago about he's coming back physically and personally. Acts 1, uh, 11 tells us that. Uh, we know that he, his coming back will be visible. And so we talked a little bit about how there is this, the whole world will see him, in fact, the Bible says, um, and so there's this sense that, you know, this is not going to happen in secret. Um, it's going to change the whole world. Um, it'll be triumphant. So this is going to be Jesus' final victory over all of the forces in, that in the world that have arrayed against God and that are, that are fighting against, you know, God's people. He'll have the ultimate victory at that time. And we've already talked about how it's going to be unexpected. Um, in spite of the general signs preceding his return, nobody knows it, when it will actually occur. And those are things that I think the, the Christians at large, from all perspectives and all points of view, would agree on. Okay, so then now let's kind of draw out some of the implications of that return. Like, what, what, is it, what does it matter? Why, why does it matter? Why, why are we talking about this? Why did this topic make the cut? Yeah, because, well, the Bible 
consistently portrays the return of Jesus as a, a hopeful, anticipated um, you know, thing for Christians to say, okay, this is going to be, um, the return of Jesus really matters because it's kind of what keeps us going, in a sense, through the, through the broken world that we're in. It's going to bring our salvation, which is real and impartial right now. We talked about how uh, a few weeks ago how there's certain things that are sort of present, past, present, and future elements of our salvation, and, and that's going to wrap them all up. It'll culminate, including culminating in our resurrection. And so that means that when Jesus comes back again, uh, Christians have this hope that then all the troubles and challenges of this world that we're fighting against, that we deal with, that they're going to be dealt with and completed, and our sanctification will be complete. And and um, and so that that's why it, it, for one of our responses uh, to the coming of Jesus is is this hopefulness, this anticipation, eagerness. Well, let's talk about that histor- historically for a second, because we do see that in the early church there was. There, this was a big deal for the early church, and I've always thought that part of the reason it was a bigger deal for the early church, not in terms of all the details of how it's all, but just the right. broader the idea, it, yeah. the hope of it, is because the early Christians really like were suffering. The early Christians really needed this, almost like a carrot tangled, not that that's what God was doing, but he wanted to give them hope, and I think today modern Christians have so much we, it's almost like we're trying to make heaven on earth, and right. some people are doing a pretty good job of it. Right. And so maybe a lot of Christians today don't think about it in the same way that the early Christians did. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think a lot of Christians today who don't live in affluent parts of the world are still thinking about it the way that right. you know, the early Christians were thinking about it. Because, because we've been able to, in, in, in America and other places, we've been able to buffer the brokenness of the world by material comfort, mm. you know, and um, by all the things that we're able to enjoy, and and so this world, this world, we don't see it in the in all of the depth of its brokenness and depravity and pain, and so yeah, I think there's a sense in which like oh, okay, well that's a the return of Jesus becomes a theological footnote or something that's in our statement of faith, but it doesn't drive our hope and our longing. Yeah, Ross, is there a version of Christianity that would say, no, our job is to bring heaven to earth. Our job is to make our is to transform our present society and culture into, into what we read about, right? In other words, it's all it's getting things are getting better. We haven't really talked about this. Everything we've been talking about is that things are getting worse. Things are going to work, getting worse until the time when Jesus comes back. Is there a version? Is there an option for people who say, "Well, what about if what about if things are supposed to get better, and then it just we have heaven on earth?" Yeah, there, that that is a theme that does crop up in different forms in different uh, eras of history. So, in up until the early in the twentieth century, this view it's called uh, pr- it's called post millennialism, mm-hmm. um, which if you parse that word, the idea is that Jesus comes back not before the millennium, but after the millennium, and there's a real millennium, and they argued that the millennium was going to be created on this earth by the improvement, by the spread of the gospel, by, you know, technology and all the other things, the good things. Um, That view has really, um, I didn't even really bring it up, 
because that view was really kind of sunk by two world wars <laughs> and major genocides around the world, yeah. the Holocaust, the Soviet Union, and Cambodia, and all the rest. So it's really hard to maintain. I mean, up until the First World War, it wasn't as hard, at least in the West, to maintain the idea that improvement, we were getting better and better and better. And people look, are good. Look, we can make a real difference. Yeah. God's people can really make a difference. And it's, you know, I think it's important that we bring it up, that it, the post-millennialism isn't a viable option from our perspective. From our perspective, right? no. And, and increasingly, very few people hold that anymore. Now, you have you have more recent versions of um, this idea. There's sort of the kingdom theology movement that says if we get involved, we get engaged, we're going to bring about God's kingdom in this world, either through prayer, through social activism, through, you know, um, through um, sort of a prosperity gospel approach, maybe even, and, and the church has the power to bring about the kingdom in the world today. That's not exactly post-millennial, but it's akin to it, mm-hmm. right? And so it's this new version of, of very, po- very positive assessment of the future of the world in, before Jesus comes back, mm-hmm. even. So with, with all this in mind, Ross, you know, talking about implications of Jesus' return, how, how, should we, wh- how should we live as Christians then? So again, for us, we're not saying... We are saying things are going to get worse before they get better, but we're not saying to give up all hope and to stop trying and to not care about the world and social justice and all those things. So how should we then live in light of the idea that that Jesus is going to come back? Yeah, that's a great... That's a fundamental question, and uh, and the Bible addresses it. First Timothy, uh, First Thessalonians 5 says we should live soberly. In other words, be alert, be awake... Don't just go blindly with the culture. Don't just go, like, swim with the stream of the culture around us. The more things get worse, the, the more Christians will have to be ready to take a stand um, for our identity. But, but Jesus tells a number of parables to say, look, it's gonna, there's this sense of delay. Like, the master's gone away, and he's left his servant in charge of the household, he says, and you don't know when he's coming back, and he's been gone a long, long time. And so the servant starts to get lax and start, starts to take advantage of the other servants and live for himself and so forth. And then Jesus tells the story that, boom, one night when he never didn't expect it, the master returned and held him to account. So part of, the, part of those parables illustrate that we just need to be on duty. We need to be at our, at, our, at our job, so to speak, as Christians, serving God, honoring God, no matter what happens around us, because this, this consistent theme throughout these parables is that when Jesus does come back, it won't be when anybody knows, and we will be held to account. So he's given us a stewardship in our life now, you know, 2,000 years later, however long it takes for him to come, when he does come, then we'll be accountable for how we've lived for him. Yeah, so the idea is don't try to time it out, (laughs) right? Like, I'm going to live for myself but then right before Jesus comes back, I'm going to get right with God. Obviously, that's an immature way to think about it, but don't try to time it out. This is yeah. what Jesus is saying in these parables, is live, live for God every moment so that you're ready at any moment. You mean like 
when my wife is gone and I don't do the dishes for six <laughs> days until the night before I know she's coming back. That's a good example. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Or I remember when the, our, our kids were little and we heard the garage door opening. Everybody jumped up and, and you know, clean, tidied everything up. Like yeah. we had a, just a few moments before <laughs> Tracy walked through those doors. Yeah. yeah, don't live your Christian life that way. Right, just keep it tidy the whole time. <laughs> That's right. So to speak. Because, and let's finish with this, because there's, there is definitely something in Scripture about receiving a reward. Now this, let's finish this by talking about this concept, because I think this concept's a little bit confusing, the idea of the final judgment yeah. and how rewards will or won't be involved in that, right? Because there's some question about this for Christians. Yeah, there's there really the final judgment... There's really two judgments for Christians. There's one judgment for the rest of the world. So the final judgment, um, whenever, it ha- whenever Jesus returns, whether the, whether the judgment takes place right then and there or whether it takes place after a millennium, regardless, the, the still flow of events is this, is, leads to a final judgment. And the judgment then opens the door to one's final destiny that we talked about um, in the last topic. So Jesus is the fine is the judge. He's going to provide preside over this all the judgment of humanity. I think for me the best easiest picture of this final judgment is Re- Revelation chapter twenty. It says all of the books will be opened. In other words, the record of everyone's life. I don't think God's keeping it in a book anymore. I'm sure God has gone digital, right? <laughs> Somehow, yeah, probably. Um, Maybe he always was digital, right, right? Exactly, or something even greater, right? Right. So, but any, the point is that we're all—all all of our deeds of our lives are going to be exposed, mm-hmm. and and then, but then he says, "Look, then there's this second book that's open. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life, and and he says only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will actually um, be saved, be right with God. Mm-hmm. So the implication from that I understand that is that from the judgment of our deeds of our life." Not a single person will pass. Even Christians will fail that judgment, because um, my life has not lived up to the standards of God's perfection. But those who have belonged to Jesus, those who've trusted in Him, then there's a secondary aspect of judgment that says Christians, then because of what Christ has done for us, then will be spared. Everybody else then goes on into what Revelation 20 calls the lake of fire and the second death. And so... So we're going to pass then on into heaven. But there's a second judgment that First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about where Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not about our eternal destiny, but it says we'll receive a recompense for what we've done, the deeds we've done in the body. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that however you've built on the foundation, the foundation's Christ, and ha- however you've built on that foundation in this world, that's going to be reflected. The, the day of Christ when he returns is going to reveal that, and you'll find out that, that what you built was lasting or not lasting. So there's going to be an evaluation of the Christian's life in Christ that is not related to the eternal judgment about our final destiny, but that reflects his reward, well done, good and faithful servant. His reward, Paul says, who, what is my crown when I stand before God? Is it not you? So the investment that he made in people's lives creates sort of a crown or a reward or a commendation before Christ for him. Okay, so I could see some people, and this would include me, that, said, that would say, okay, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around because I've always 
that sounds like works-based righteousness. So let's just have this conversation as we, because this really is, this is important theology. We don't want people to walk away from this saying, whoa, hold on, 12 weeks of systematic theology and we end on this idea that I am going to be I am going to be saved by my works. Is that what we're saying? No, not at all. So we're not saved by the works, but once we are saved, then our works will determine what kind of, let's say, plaudits we get, accolades that we might get. What kind of attaboys do we get from Jesus? You know, we've wasted our life. Uh, in that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it says you can build with permanent, or he says that, you know... The day of Christ's return is going to test it. Everything will be tested by fire. He said, some will escape, as it were, through the flames. Okay, well, they escaped. In other words, they're saved. But did their life result in something that's lasting or not? You know, so, so you know, I'm still saved. I still belong to Jesus. I made it through the flames, so to speak. Mm. But, but I, I vision sometimes like a guy standing in his pajamas in the street in the middle of the night watching his house burn down. Mm. You, know, uh, you know, he's, he's still alive, but he doesn't have anything to show for his life anymore. Mm. And so, yeah, we're saved, and, and, um, but I don't know how the rewards work. I don't know, you know, because in this world, rewards kind of play to pride and ego and sometimes right. and stuff like that. Right. But, you know, the parable of the of the talent says Jesus says to the to the servant well done good and faithful servant you know that implies that there's something that is that Jesus gives us um, an acknowledgement at least mm -hmm. in the world to come for what we did I've heard it I've heard it said this is a good way for me to make sense of it in my mind is that at the at that judgment the bema seat judgment yeah. that that when when we're given our reward, we'll just lay it all back down at the feet. Yeah, it totally Jesus. makes sense. Yeah. That totally makes sense. So to yeah. me, that's how I that's how I reconcile that whole thing because in my own heart, I could tell, like you said, otherwise it could I could get to the sense. I think this could happen for Christians is this sense of I'm going to have a bigger mansion than you in heaven and I'm really, because <laughs> I'm I've worked live hard up on the hill. Yeah, you're going to live down on the other side of the tracks. That's right yeah. because I've really worked hard for this. And any to me, anything that 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 puts the focus on me yeah. and what I've done, misses the whole point, the whole picture of heaven. Ross, what would you say to people here, whether on this topic, on the, the judgment, the, work, the judgment of works, the judgment of faith, whether on the topic of the rapture or the millennium, whether on the topic of the atonement, anything that we've covered in the last 12 weeks, people who would say, this has been a great introduction to theology and I want more. What would you say to them as we wrap up this series? What should they do if they want to dive, take a deeper dive into theology or even systematic theology? Yeah, there's a number of books out there of uh, theological works titles. So you know, we've had we've recommended that people be reading this book called Christian Beliefs along the way if they're able to. Uh, the same author has authored another book that's like one step up mm -hmm. in in doctrine and theology. Um, I can't. I think it's the, called Bible it's Doctrine. Called Bible Doctrine. Yeah. Thank you. And then, and then he even off, authored a book that's one step above that, which is called Systematic Theology. But there's other systematic theologies out there that are also good that have different perspective on things that come at it from different. I've been enjoying one uh, recently. Um, 
I can't remember the title of it, but it's by a, a theologian from Australia named Matthew Bird. And he's, he's done a good job, has a different take on things. So a somewhat different take within Scripture on things. So if you're going to go buy books on theology, just make sure that, that they're uh, not written by people from a, a perspective that, of liberal kind of theology or an approach that, that doesn't really take the Bible seriously, because mm-hmm. a lot of theology can be just uh, people's musings about their opinions about reality. If it's not really biblically based, then it's not going to help you. Yeah, that's why I, I, gr- I agree, Ross. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, that's, where we, that's what I started with years ago, is this, mm-hmm. and it's a really big, thick volume, and then he's got these smaller versions of it. Uh, it's, that's a good starting point, but it's still just his perspective on it. Right. It's not Scripture. As much as I agree with most of what he says in there and have been shaped by a lot of that, it's not Scripture. So remember, when you're out there studying, reading other books... Always have that Bible open. Yeah, that's and, the, the point, right? Yeah, is really understanding what God has said, how He's revealed His truth in His Word, and and be praying. Say, ask the Holy Spirit to open your understanding to what the truth is, and be gracious in all these gray areas, mm-hmm. all these areas where there's some debate. There's historically been debate. You're not going to come up with a zinger, and the final answer that finally answers this issue of. This debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, or right. this debate between the rapture on the the millennium, or or anything like that. Just be gracious with other believers, yeah, and really try to major on the majors, and then in everything else, really, really uh, love people and and be willing to listen. That's to That's one of the one of the pitfalls of doing theological training, is that it can be, as you mentioned earlier, knowledge puffs up, and it, it can be abstracted from relationships with people. It can be, you know, kind of abstracted or pulled away from my own relationship with God. If I'm reading theology and learning these things, but I don't have a growing relationship with with God in in my daily spiritual disciplines, and uh, if my heart's not warm toward Him, that's a potential, I guess, occupational hazard Hmm. of studying theology, that it could become just head only and not heart. Yeah, and remember, that's why PursueGod.org exists. <clears throat> it exists to help you, if you're a Christian, to help you make disciples or to help you help someone else pursue God. So Systematic Theology, this 12-week series, you can find this at PursueGod.org forward slash SysTheo, S-Y-S-T-H-E-O. But also, if you've never taken the pursuit or if you've never taken someone else through the pursuit, that also is a 12-week series, but it's more about the fundamentals. It's more about wh- who, what is God like? What does he want for us? What's his heart toward people? What is sin? Who is Jesus? Mm-hmm. How do I be saved? How does he want me to live my life? So The Pursuit is another 12-week series. If you haven't taken that before, make sure to take that series as well. That's a great series to take next if you didn't take it before you took Theo. And remember, it's not just about you and your information and your knowledge. It's all built to help someone else pursue God. So don't just go through this content at PursueGod.org for yourself. Bring someone else through it. That's what we call disciple-making, and you can do it all at PursueGod.org. So make sure to do it, check it out, and join us next Tuesday because we're going to dive into some more great content as we do every Tuesday and Friday on the Pursue God podcast.